A few weeks ago, someone came to me after the service and uh, did what many of you often do because you are an incredibly gracious and kind and loving and supportive church. Uh, someone came to me after the service and, and gave me a, a compliment and really affirmed our church and me. Uh, I don't remember actually who it was, uh, but I remember them coming in and they said that we had been inviting someone to church for a long time, but they, they don't come to church ever. And uh, we invited them to Prince and they loved it. They felt warmly welcomed. Uh, they loved the music. They loved the preaching. Uh, it is always our desire for you to invite people to church. We say that to you all the time, not because we believe that what we do here is that significant, but what we believe what God does here is significant. And if you can get someone in a room where God is present, that's life-changing, okay? So that's a big part of our vision here. Get them to church and let them experience God. And it seems like that's what was happening. One of the things they said was this. They said, you know, our friend came and he said, one of the things he loves about your church is that you don't ever talk about money. And I thought, well, I, I'm glad he liked it. I, it's great. Praise the Lord. I think a lot of people love a church that never talks about money. But to be honest with you, I couldn't stop thinking about that phrase. And although, uh, in a sense, I was grateful that they had come and enjoyed it, uh, I felt really convicted. And they didn't intend it that way. That was not on them. That's just what the, the work of the, the Spirit of God was doing in my heart. Um, the fact that if someone would come here week after week, year after year, and, and say, I like this church because they never talk about money, that's not a good thing because Jesus talked a lot about money. More than he talked about prayer. More than he talked about faith. More than he talked about heaven. And more than he talked about hell. If I were to preach on money to the proportion that Jesus preached on money, no one would ever come to our church and say they don't talk enough about money. So I started to wonder, why don't I talk more about money? Honestly, like the Lord really used this in my life. And, and there are, there's some reasons. I mean, I think, you know, these prosperity preachers kind of ruined it for a lot of us. Um, there are those who certainly seem to be motivated by material gain. And as a result of that, preach in such a way to manipulate people and hurt people. The reality is in many of those more charismatic congregations, the pastor owns the property, he owns the church, he gets a cut of what comes in. And so if that's the case, they're really motivated to make sure people give. I just wanna be clear, that doesn't work that way at Prince. I'm not on commission and I own nothing. Let's just be clear about that right now. No matter how much you give, I don't get more. But I think there is some of that. I, I think there is in my generation of preachers kind of an overcompensation from the extreme of these people always talked about money and so we won't talk about it. But I also wonder if there's some fear of man there for me, like an ungodly, unhealthy fear of man. That I don't want anybody to come to our church and hear us talk about money and I don't want them to leave because we talked about money. And if that's the case, well, that's just, that's sin on my part. The truth is the Bible talks a lot about money. Jesus talked a lot about money. And it's not because he was motivated by money. He doesn't need money. Do you remember, remember when Peter came and said, Jesus, it's time to pay our taxes. And, and Jesus said, well, go catch a fish. And in that fish, there's gonna be some coins and use that to pay the taxes. Jesus didn't have any money, folks. He got some coins out of the mouth of a fish to pay the taxes. Like Jesus didn't buy anything. Jesus didn't have a home. When people came to follow Jesus, he said, well, I don't have a place to lay my head. And they followed him anyway. Jesus didn't own anything. He, had, he, had, he didn't have money. But yet he kept talking about money. 
So his motive was certainly not money. So what was his motive? His motive was love. He loved people. He loves you. He he cares about you. He's concerned about the condition of your heart. We've talked about in the book of Proverbs that out of the heart flows all of the issues of life. Everything in your life flows out of your heart. And Jesus makes it clear that one of the things that can have the greatest influence on your heart is your money. Therefore, if Jesus cares about your heart, he has to talk about your money just because he loves you. I think when we come to a conversation like this or any conversation that demands some faith or surrender or trust, we have to come with the understanding of something like a John 10, 10, which Jesus says, I have come to give you life and life abundantly. And so we start with this confidence that the reason Jesus came is to lead us into real life, into true life, into abundant life. And that life begins the moment in which we see Christ crucified, when we see Christ buried, when we see Christ risen, and we acknowledge that there is nothing we can do to get ourselves right with God. We must trust what Christ has already done for us. And so we turn to the Lord, we call upon the name of the Lord, we ask him to save us from our sins, and we get our eternal life guaranteed. But Jesus' desire was not for us to make that decision in the hope that someday I would experience abundant life, but that life begins the moment you come to know Jesus. And so life with Jesus is this increasing, ever increasing, the more that we trust him, the more that we surrender, the more that we trust him and walk with him, ever-increasing experience of abundant life. This is eternal life that you may know me, Jesus says. And so it is that Jesus not only wants us to have eternity secured, but he wants us to experience his abundant life now. And Jesus knows that one of the primary things that can rob you of that life is your money. There is a certain danger to money. There's a certain pull of money. There's a way in which money can begin to own us. And Jesus, knowing that, caring for you, loving you, talks about it. I think about 1 Timothy 6.10, which says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Listen to this phrase. Some people, eager for money. I'm not saying they're just a lover of money. They're just eager for money. They just, they want more money. They have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Well, Jesus knows that. He knows that money can pull you away from the faith and give you added sorrows. And then I think about the parable of the soils. I mentioned this last week in Mark 4. I'm not sure there is any text more appropriate for the time and place in which we live. I mean, 2023, Oconee County, Georgia, that's more helpful for us in the parable of the soils because it talks about groups of people who heard the gospel. They prayed a prayer. They walked an aisle They came to church, they served, but they just kind of wandered away from that. That thing which was really important to them is now not that important to them anymore. And it says one of the reasons that people have wandered away from the faith is because of the deceitfulness of riches. They've been deceived by money and money stole their heart. So it seems that if money has the ability to steal your heart, If money has the ability to cause you to wander away from the faith and give you countless sorrows, it would seem that a loving God and maybe even a loving pastor would talk to you about money. That's exactly what God does. And it's not just this theory, it's practical application for how we can deal with our money in a way, listen, this is God's motivation with money, 
to deal with our money in a way that both glorifies God and is for our good. That's the key. Like you have to believe that God knows better than you. And you have to believe that God gives you a command because he knows what's better and walking in obedience to that command is for your good. Do you believe that obeying God is for your good? Like that is, that is Christianity 101. Whether I understand the command or not, I walk in it because I believe that what God calls me to do is for my good. And then when I walk in it, my life begins to fulfill the purpose for which it was created. I give glory to God. My life then glorifies God as I walk in the ways he's commanded and it's for my good. That's always God's motive. And that's exactly the passage that we get this morning in Proverbs chapter three. I said to you last week, I wanted to address the spiritual side of this. And so for those of you that were not here last week, you're gonna hear this sermon and say, well, that feels really practical. Well, last week I talked about the spiritual side of money, the effect that can have on your life and the way in which we need to be careful with it. This morning is an intensely practical sermon. So much so that I felt really insecure about it last night. I, it feels almost like it should be more of a Wednesday night kind of talk where I talk about some specific practical things about money. And so I told Andrea last night before we going to bed, I said, I just, I don't feel good about this message. It feels really practical. To which she said, well, it's biblical and we need to hear it. Okay, I guess I'll preach it then. So it's just a way to just say it exactly like it is. And it's right, it's biblical. Everything I'm gonna to say to you is directly from the word of God. Everything I'm gonna to say to you is God's wisdom that he has given to you because he loves you and he cares about you and he knows the deceitfulness of riches. So in order to protect you, in order for your heart to remain pure, he gives us some intensely practical instruction about money. And it begins with this Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. Look at this Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. It says this. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Now, I would say this is one of those passages where every word matters. Honor the Lord with your wealth, first fruits of all your produce, of everything that you have. And then there's this promise for those who do that. Look at verse 10. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. And I, I think we look at verse 10 and we say, I want that. That's what I want. I want my barns filled with plenty and your vats bursting with wine. Like, I just, I want that, God. I want your best. I want your abundance, all of those things. But that hinges on your obedience to verse nine. And it works this way as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That as we walk in his way, then he fulfills these promises. If you will honor the Lord from your wealth and the first fruits of all your produce, then God makes a promise to you. Your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, some of you immediately feel relieved this morning because you know that this text is not about you and you don't have to listen because this is for those who have wealth. It says it right there. Honor the Lord from your wealth. You say, well, good, I'm out. Well, I, I really hate to disappoint you here. But that word wealth simply means the necessities of life. The word wealth means everything that God has entrusted to you. That's what it means. And just because we know not only from that word, but the way in which Proverbs works with parallelism and from the first fruits of all of your produce. So this is everything. This is, this is every single thing that you have. Whatever God's given to you, listen, whatever God's given to you is here. 
And we're talking about financial resources today, but this is true with your gifts and your talents and all your possessions, everything is here. And it says, the desire here is that you would honor the Lord with it. That word honor means to glorify or to reflect the Lord. This is, Romans 12, worship. Worship is the surrendering of everything I have to the Lord, acknowledging it's his and not mine. I have it all with an open hand. I don't have a closed hand with my things. I have an open hand. And I'm honoring the Lord. I'm reflecting him. I'm giving him glory, which means this is not only worship. This is the way we experience the life of God, the abundant life. This is also evangelistic. You realize the evangelistic implications? If you honor the Lord with your wealth, the result is people see it and give glory to God. This is exactly the way in which God has designed this area of our life. This area that we really don't want people to touch. And I think, I wonder sometimes if, if the people that say, I love the church because they don't talk about money. It's not because they think the church talks too much about money. It's because they don't want anybody touching their money. Like sometimes, sometimes it's not an indictment on the church. It's just that, to be honest with you, I don't want to go someplace where they try to tell me what to do with my money. Well, let me tell you this. God tells you what to do with your money. Exactly what to do. And there's so much wisdom here and so much grace and so much kindness in this practical instruction. What I'm going to tell you is common sense, but as the old phrase says, there's just not much common sense out there anymore. It's really not that common. So I want to give you five words, five words that describe directly from the book of Proverbs what you are to do with your money. I plead with you to get this down. Five words. The first one is this. You ready for this? Work. Work. It's, it's the first one. Work. That is God's means of provision. We work. There are a lot of ways to get money. God's way is through work. Proverbs 1, the first conversation that we have between the father and the son, we looked at this months ago. This is the father looking at the son, which he loves, that is, is growing and getting independent. And he looks at the son and he says, son, I'm concerned about something. Your friends are idiots. That's my interpretation of this, but it's exactly what it says. Your friends are fools. They're idiots. And they're going to lead you astray. And I'm begging you to get rid of these friends and find new friends. And then he shows all of the things about their friends that make them bad friends. And one of the things is their eagerness for quick money. That's one of the indications of the bad friendships. Is they're just desperate to find money quickly. They, they've got plans and they've got schemes. And they're promising you that if you'll come with them, you'll get all of this money quickly. And he says, Son, that's not, not how, it, how it works. But people want it to work this way. This is why when you stop at a stoplight, oftentimes you'll see in the grass over there these signs about how you can make $5,000 a week with passive income. Do you see those? Apparently they work because they keep putting them out there. Someone is calling those numbers. Why? Because they're motivated by a desire to, to find a way to get wealthy quickly. This is how the lottery works. The lottery exploits poor people. 61% of people that play the lottery, listen, 61% of people that play the lottery are in the lowest income bracket. And they're exploited because they're desperately trying to spend their money to make a lot more money without doing anything. Well, that's just not the way that God ever intended it to be. And the indication is always on the fact that there's a connection between our hard work and God's provision. I googled this week how to get rich quick. Now, if you look at my search history and you see that, I, I, it was an illustration for a sermon, okay? People have access to my search history. So I just, how do I get rich quick? It was amazing. 
no one said work hard. There were some really incredible schemes on there, like some incredible ways to make a lot of income. But I didn't find anybody that said, number one, start working early and keep working hard. No one said that. And I think because if that was number one, they're going to click off that and go to the next article. No one wants to hear that, but the proverb says it over and over. Listen to what it says in Proverbs 10.2. Ill-gotten gain does not profit. Proverbs 13.11. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle. The foolish is the one who tries to get money quickly, looking for scams and breaks. But over and over, there's an indication of the way in which God blesses our work. Listen to these verses. There's a lot of them. Proverbs 28, 19. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Proverbs 10, 4. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 12, 11, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Proverbs 14, 23, in all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. You ever known someone that always has a good idea? They always got some plan of how to make a lot of money and they never make money. Why? Because mere talk leads to poverty. 24, 33 through 34, it says a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. In other words, the wisdom of God says there's a connection between your provision and your hard work. I have this little leadership principle that I think about a lot. Sometimes you find yourself in a situation where you're looking for the right answer. And sometimes you won't make a decision because that just doesn't feel like the perfect right answer. And I've discovered that sometimes you have to make the right answer right now, not wait for the best answer later. Sometimes you just have to do the right thing now. I feel like when I talk to a lot of people about their job, there's a lot of people out there who are waiting for the right thing when there's something right now that they should probably start doing. You don't wait three years for the perfect thing. You go get a job. You go do something. You go work. Because the way in which God is intended to provide for you is through work. That's God's means of provision. Number two, plan. Work is number one, directly from the word of God, and plan. If work is God's means of provision, plan is God's way of stewardship. This is the way in which God teaches us how to deal with our money. It begins with an awareness that this isn't my money, it's God's money. We talked about how different last week you would feel if you were using a company credit card. Uh, you would feel like you had to be more careful with it because it doesn't belong to you. Well, you should feel that way with every dollar you have because it's not yours, it's God's. And the wise person is the one who before they spend, thinks carefully about their money. They plan their money. And often the biggest issue with money is just a lack of a plan. And so there's all these verses and Proverbs that connect your planning and your prudence and your thoughtfulness with provision. Listen to this, Proverbs 21.5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. To poverty. So the one who's hasty with their money, who's not thoughtful and doesn't stop and wait before they spend and plan, then that person is, is going to be led to poverty. Proverbs 14.15. The simple believe everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. So the one that doesn't plan, the one that doesn't give thought, the one that isn't careful, the one that isn't prudent is the one who is headed towards poverty. You've often heard it said that a budget is simply a plan for your money. 
And if you don't have a plan for your money, it's amazing how your money goes in all kinds of places you didn't intend for it to go because there's simply no budget and plan. You say, does the Bible teach budgeting? The Bible teaches that if you do not have a plan for your money, then there's no possible way that you will find the blessing of God in your money. I was talking to a young couple recently. I, I noticed this young couple that I know seemed to be really good with money. And when you see a young couple that seems to be good with money, it's shocking. And so you notice it. And I said, how is it that you were good with money? And they said, because when I asked my future father-in-law if I could marry his daughter, he only had one stipulation. We could not get married until we first took Financial Peace University. That is a Christian uh, budgeting plan, a financial plan. And he said, before we ever got married, we knew that we needed a plan for our money. And I thought, what an unbelievable gift <laughs> that, a, that a father would say, you're not going to marry my daughter unless you know how to deal with money first, unless you're on the same page. Because oftentimes the biggest frustrations and difficulties with our money is that we just do not have a plan. And you may be in a position now where you're young and you say, well, I've got, I've got money. I don't have to worry about that. I promise you, you need a plan. When I was pastoring in Dallas, Texas, we were in this very odd area. It was a very wealthy community, yet there were two Section 8 housing complexes. Long story on how they got there, but just a lot of generational poverty, uh, a lot of cycles of poverty. And when you look at that, that's complicated stuff. Uh, it is very difficult to break out of those cycles of generational poverty. But one of the things we did is we wanted to bless these families. And so we would ask them uh, right before Christmas the specific needs that they had. We would then take those needs. We would give them to, need, to people in our church. Our church then would provide the gifts, wrap them, and hand deliver them to these families. Uh, call them by name, pray with them, and bless them. But after a couple of years, our church got a little disenfranchised with the whole plan because this is what kept happening. They would go up to an apartment complex, Section 8 housing. They would knock on the door. And they were coming to deliver to a family some socks because the family would say, we don't have enough money to get our kids socks for school. And when they walked into the house, what they would see is a 70-inch television. And they would think, I wish I had a television that nice. And they had just gone to buy some socks for their kid. And so here's a kid that didn't have socks, but the parent bought a television. Well, there's a problem there. And to be honest with you, that's an extreme example, but I would say many of you are walking in that exact situation in life when there's all kinds of extra things, when the things that you really need, you don't have money for, and you're stressed about the necessities because of all the unnecessary things that you've bought. Well, that's a lack of plan. And the Bible is very clear that the one who is thinking about things and planning well is the one who the Lord will bless I took two of our kids last week to get bank accounts. One already had one, but we're transitioning to another bank. And for another one, it was their first bank account. And on the drive there, we had this conversation. If you get $100, the first 10 goes to the church, period. Immediately off the top. That's the minimum. The next 10 goes directly to savings. This is why we're getting you a savings account, because you're going to do the next 10. Then you're going to pay your bills. And then if you have a few dollars left, you can have fun. Well, what if there's not much left? Welcome to adulthood. My $4 of fun money. But no, nobody's talking about these things anymore. Like that's basic. You give, you plan, and then you just continue to watch as the Lord blesses as you're doing things his way. You work, you plan. The second one is this, you pay. <laughs> you pay. You work, you plan, and you, uh, plan, and you pay. What I mean by pay is that's God's plan for buying. You pay what you owe, and you're careful with owing. 
What I mean is, listen to this, you don't buy things you can't afford. That's the point. You don't buy things you can't afford. I did some research this week. The average American has $9,000 in credit card debt. It doesn't sound like a ton. 9,000 credit card debt. The average interest rate for credit cards is 21%, which means this. If you were to make the minimum payment every single month, the minimum payment you have to make, which is your interest plus about 1% of what you actually owe, you're going to be at about $240 a month and will pay it off in five years and will have paid over $15,000 for that $9,000. That's if you don't add anything to it. You say, for the next five years, I'm not going to borrow one more thing. I'm not going to use any credit cards for five years. Well, for five years, you're paying off that $9,000 at $240-something a month. See, that's exactly why you have a proverb like this that says in Proverbs 22, 7, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is a slave to the lender. Because here's the problem. By that $9,000 of credit card debt, you have enslaved yourself and are not able to do the things you want to do or need to do because you have put yourself in a position of slavery by getting in that kind of debt. Proverbs 22 says this, 26 and 27. Be not one of those who give pledges, who put up security for debts, if you have nothing with which to pay. If you don't have the money, don't buy it. Why should your bed be taken from under you? They say, well, is debt ever acceptable? I would say yes. As a matter of fact, I have found that there are those people who say there is no reason you should ever take debt for any reason at all. Almost every one of those people that say that have a mortgage. And so there are some principles of, of wisdom here. I think, first of all, if you're buying something that's producing income, so let's say you're starting a business, you're going to have to probably borrow in order to start the business. But if you know it's going to produce income, so let's just say you wanted to start a, a power washing business. This is my example because I power washed yesterday and I just thought I could do this. <laughs> man, that's so fun. It's just relaxing. I just thought, man, a good power washing business. It's just a fallback. I'm not doing it anytime soon, but it's, it's got me thinking. There's just no stress out there. But if you're going to do that, you're going to have to buy the power washer. You might borrow a little money, but you know you're producing income. And so, so that's not a bad thing. If, if the item that you're purchasing is worth more than you owe on it, so you're wanting to buy a house and you put enough down where your payment is something that you can afford, but yet you know that what you're putting money into is worth more than you owe. Well, if that's the kind of house you're buying, then, then that could be a wise use of, of taking debt. But that's not the case with most debt. Most debt, primarily credit card debt, is really a lack of trust. Can I just say this? It's primarily a lack of discipline. It's a lack of self-control or it's pride. Meaning I'm driven to spend money I don't have because I want things I don't have. And it's that lack of discipline that can get you an incredible amount of bondage. I love Proverbs 13, 7. Listen to this. One pretends to be rich and has nothing. Another pretends to be poor and has great wealth. Sometimes that person you see that appears to be rich appears that way because of $20,000 in credit card debt that they might never get out of. And now they're living in bondage. So you work, you plan, you pay. The, third, the fourth one is this, you save. You save, you work, you plan, you pay, and you save. It is God's provision for uncertain times. Do you know that the Bible talks about saving money? The Bible talks about thinking about times that, 
maybe a little lean that you're saving for things that you're going to need for the future. The Bible talks about this. The reality is saving is preparing for the future. Borrowing is presuming upon the future. Borrowing is your presumption that someday you're going to have more money and it's going to be okay. That's a presumption and it's a bad presumption. But saving is basically preparing for the future. Look at the Proverbs about this. Proverbs 10, 5. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son. The one who stores up things, that's a prudent son, a wise son. But he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Proverbs 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise. Watch, having no chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. So not only is the ant working hard and being diligent, but preparing for the future. Proverbs 21, 20, there is a precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but the foolish man swallows it up. You know what that means? The foolish ones spends everything they have. They just spend everything they have. But the prudent, the wise, the godly one is the one who saves up. It says this in Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. That means that wisdom says to slowly and steadily and consistently, listen to this, slowly, steadily, consistently, spend less than you make <laughs> and save money all through the book of Proverbs. So what does God say? He says, work is the means by which I provide for you. Take your money and give it a plan. Then he says, pay for what you owe. And then he says, save money. But the final one is this. The final one is to give, to give. This is God's means of protection. How does God protect you from loving money? How does God protect you from money having a control over you, money owning you? How is it that God protects your heart? One of the primary ways that God protects your heart is by calling you to consistently give. Listen again to our key text for today, Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. I told you this last week, I'm gonna say it again. I believe unquestionably, biblically, in first fruits tithing. What I mean is I believe in first fruits giving. Let me be very clear here. What that means is this, you don't give God your leftover money. You do not look at the end of the month and say, I've got $5 left, I'll give God a token. Let me remind you, God does not need your money. So giving God a little token at the end of the month has no faith whatsoever, and the Lord doesn't bless anything that doesn't have faith. It has no confidence in God. It's not coming out of a cheerful, obedient heart. What it's saying is this, God, if I have a little bit left over, I'll give that to you. This is why it says you give out of the first fruits of your produce. God taught throughout all of the Old Testament, the way in which giving is blessed by God and becomes an act of faith is that he gets the first of everything you get. Because then what you're saying is this, Lord, I'm gonna start by giving to you, and now for the next two weeks, I'm trusting you. That's the way God wants you to live. He also wants you to budget in that 10% or whatever it is, but I believe that 10% is a starting place for the believer. I believe this. I believe that discipleship 101. Man, if I'm, if I'm talking to someone that just came to know the Lord, I'm gonna talk about fasting and praying and reading the word of God, and I'm gonna talk to them day one, discipleship 101, start giving consistently from the first fruits. What should I start with? I would suggest you start with 10%. Well, that sounds like a lot of money. Well, God's letting you have 90%. 10%. 
believe all throughout the New Testament, we see this. Matthew 6, 2, Jesus is talking about these spiritual disciplines, fasting, praying, and giving. And he says this, when you give, meaning Jesus assumed that every believer was gonna give. And then in Matthew 23, it says this, verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. What he says is this, you should have tithed, but but don't neglect the weightier matters of the law, like justice and faithfulness. But he was expecting them to be tithing. He said, those things you, you should have done. Now, here's what I believe. I believe biblically that the place you start as a believer, just start with 10%, make it a commitment, trust the Lord, walk by faith, listen to me. I'm gonna say something that, that you may have not heard before. And then I believe you increase it from there as you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Andrew and I began our marriage with 10%. We have consistently increased that percentage. And the reason I believe that is because a passage that changed my life, 2 Corinthians 8, 8 and 9 are both about money, but listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians 8, 7. Listen to this. This is gonna be new for some of you and a challenge for some of you. It says, 2 Corinthians 8, 7, but just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and love we inspired in you. He's saying you're abounding in love and faith. You're growing in these areas. See that you abound in this gracious work also. What gracious work is he talking about? The gracious work of giving. He's talking about the offering that they've been collecting for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And he says in the same way you grow in faith and love, you should also be growing in giving. I believe that unquestionably. Here's what I believe. I believe if you've been a, been a believer for 20 years and you're still given 10%, you are not growing in the grace of Jesus Christ. You're not growing in your faith. You're not growing in your confidence to the Lord. There's a lack of spiritual growth. I think you just continue to grow in this grace of giving. I find it interesting, I say this often, giving is the only area in which we don't really wanna grow in. I wanna grow in faith and love. Lord, give me more love, give me more faith. And he says, grow in this gracious gift also. And so what I would say to you is that your giving needs to be systematic. You just, you do it right off the top. You do it first, you do it immediately. It needs to be consistent. It needs to be sacrificial. Some of you, when you first got married or right now, I remember I had a discipleship group about three years ago and we talked about giving. And I talked to these high school students and two out of them had a job and they said, where should I start? I said, 10%. They thought I was crazy. They could not believe that they would give the first 10%. So for some of you, that just sounds overwhelming. That's a massive sacrifice. And it is for some of you. For some of you, 20% is not a sacrifice. It should be systematic and sacrificial. And let me just say this. If that makes you angry, you've got a problem. If that makes you angry, if something in you just gets angry at the thought of consistently giving that way, there is a problem in your heart. I'm just telling you. There's a direct connection between how you view giving and your heart and relationship to the Lord. And some of you need to be bothered by this. Some of you need to be shaken up to realize that there is something wrong if that makes you mad. Here's the most amazing thing about this. <laughs> think about this with me. I just want you to think about this, the way the Lord works. 100% belongs to God. He entrusts you with it. And then he asks you to give a portion of all that he's given to you, which doesn't even belong to you. Listen to this. And then he rewards you for giving it. It doesn't even belong to you. 
And then he blesses you for giving it back. Going back to our key passage today from Proverbs 3.10. If you do this, your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now, let me tell you the passage that God has used in my life, Luke 6.38. Write down Luke 6.38. That has caused me to want to give more and more. It says this, listen. Give and it will be given to you, period. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. Here's the key phrase. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. If you're with me, say amen. Listen to what it says here. The measure you use to give is the measure it will be used to give back to you. So let's say I, I give Jesus a little teaspoon, right? So I just give a little teaspoon. Well, then that's the measure Jesus gives to give back to you. Use a teaspoon. Let's say you use a gallon jug and I give a gallon jug. Well, the Lord then uses a gallon jug to give back to you. Like this is not prosperity gospel. This is just the way in which the Lord has promised time and time and time and time again to work. Because the Lord rewards faith. It's not about money. It's about faith. Do you trust God? And the measure you use to give is the measure it will be used to give back to you. After the first service, I stood right here while person after person came and gave so many testimonies. You cannot outgive God. You cannot outgive God. Well, how do you know that? Because of what it says right here in Luke 6, 38, because the measure you use is the measure it will be used to give back to you. And I am just incredibly grateful that I grew up in a home with a mother and father that loved to give. And Andrea has parents that love to give. And some of you have never seen this, but can I just tell you, being raised in a family that loved to give, at my dad's funeral, I stood up at his funeral and I told stories about things that my dad would do to give. The people he paid for for things and all of the gifts that he would give. People he would just pay for. He just was always giving. And what I saw is two things. I saw the joy of giving money away. And I saw the blessing of God. And so I just kind of grew up in a family where it's fun to give money away. Like this is the greatest joy in the world. When there's an offering, we're the first ones in. Because God blesses it. And some of you have never experienced that and you're missing what God wants to do. Because the reality is, is that God wants to show you the way in which he rewards not money, he rewards faith. And it's all an issue of faith and surrender. So I asked our executive pastor, Tim Luke, this week, I said, I, I, I need to know some things. I have no access to anyone's giving. I don't, I don't, can't, I don't know anything. I can't access it. I know, I know, I know nothing. The only exception is this. Twice a year, I get Tim to tell me yes or no if every staff member at Prince is giving and tithing. So he knows what they make and he knows what they're tithing. I check every staff member's giving to make sure they're tithing. So just know that. There's accountability there. How's God gonna bless our church if they're not doing that? I got no confidence God's gonna bless our church if we're not doing that. But I said, man, just tell me what's going on with the giving of our church. This terrifies me. It terrifies me for you and it terrifies me for me because 1 Peter 5 says, I'm gonna stand before God and give an account for the way in which I shepherded the people of God. Here's what I learned. 34% of the members of our church, Prince partners, these are people that have come to the class. I'm in, I love Prince, I wanna be engaged. 34% give nothing. We're like $1.5 million over budget. Like, I'm not saying this because we need money. I'm saying this terrifies me for you. Terrifies me. And then listen to this. 22% give less than $2,500 a year. I, I would doubt for most people that's a tithe. 
Less than 2,500. What that means, that's people giving the leftover. Lord, I have a little bit of left. I'm gonna give, I'm gonna give Jesus a little token, $100. Isn't the church blessed? Isn't God blessed? I'll give church a little $100 here and there. Which means this, listen, 56% of the members of our church give less than $2,500 a year. That is unbelievable and terrifying. I had someone say to me the other day, Prince Avenue Baptist Church should never need a building fund. If every member tithed, when it was time to build the next building, we would just write the check. We should never need a building fund. What's up next? All right, let's do it. It's really a scary thing to me. Because I love you and I care about you and I care about your heart. I'm not gonna know what you give. We're over budget. I'm not motivated by money, but something is wrong in your heart. Your heart is not healthy if you're not consistently giving. And the reality is, is that the reason I wanted to end by talking about giving is first of all, it's the biggest issue in the Bible about money and because it also exposes our heart. It just is a way God kind of graciously exposes us. He opens up our heart and he looks at our giving and he says, there's something not right there. And isn't it gracious and kind and loving of God to show you through your money that something's not right with your heart? Isn't that kind? It's painful, but it's really gracious. And the response to a message like this is simply a response of faith and surrender. Lord, I, I, I don't trust you. And Lord, I'm not surrendered to you. And so my response to you is to say, Lord, I trust you. And because I trust you, I'm gonna be obedient. And I'm gonna surrender everything I have to you. And this is a sermon in which you make a decision to obey. It may be in any of those areas. Maybe some of you are lazy and you need to start working. But in any area of your life, what you do is you look at this and say, Lord, I'm gonna step out and I'm gonna do what you call me to do. I'm gonna walk in obedience to you because I want your best and I want your blessing. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.